The Bible reading for today is from John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. You can find that on page 1633 of the Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Thanks, Sharon. Hey, everyone. I have a couple preachers and announcements for you. Uh, these are usually like pastoral things. So we have some opportunities to do some stuff uh, helping people who are in need. Um, one is the uh, Madison Area Jail Ministry is collecting winter coats, hats, gloves, boots for that are men's, women's, or unisex that are large to 4XL. You can bring them until November 26th. These are for folks who are incarcerated right now, but who are going to get out in the winter months. We have a brother who's been in here for like a number of months I've been corresponding with who's going to get out this winter. He's really looking forward to get back, getting back here, and we're looking forward to welcoming him. Um, but this is a way we can help folks who are getting out of prison over the next several months. Secondly, um, End Time Ministries, we packed a bunch of Thanksgiving meals with them last year. About 45 of you guys did that. We're doing that again this year. The packing date is going to be November 13th um, from 5 to 6 p.m. Distribution is going to be the 18th at 10 a.m. and following, if you want to be part of like bringing 400 or 500 meals to some families in the, that, the area that are going to benefit from that. Last, there's going to be an ecumenical or multi-church 
Thanksgiving celebration on November 20th at City Church. If you want to go and have a worship service with a bunch of churches that normally don't have worship services together, including Ukrainian Orthodox and some stuff like that, um, that'll be a great time. November 20th, 6.30 p.m. at City Church. Okay. You guys ready to jump in? All right, this is going to be something. Um, I do admire you guys sitting in the front row. That's good stuff. Um, Okay. Um, One of the cliches uh, that I hate more than most um, that has been said to me a number of times is this one. Sorry, I'm having trouble. Um, People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Do you know that? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, now, it, it could be. I, I don't like this because people have told me this because sometimes I seem like a know-it-all that doesn't care about people, <laughs> which is crazy. And I asked my wife if that was reasonable, and she said no, with a smirk on her face that hurt my feelings a little bit. Um, but the other reason I don't like it is because it's just not true. All right, have you, like, have you been watching who people listen to? It is not the people who care about them the most, right? Yes, I'm sure that TikTok influencer with like 37 million views who will never know that you exist knows more about your like humanity than your parents. I mean, I'm sure that's true, right? And like, or the like the charismatic professor that tells you that your parents are completely bigoted so you should like, like never talk to your family again. Like, yeah, that's probably right. That person cares about you and rem- will remember your name the minute you leave their classroom. Like, the idea that people actually listen in the most critical moments to the people who actually care about them the most is crazy. It's just false. situation where that cliche can sometimes be true, and it's sort of like whenever you have to tell somebody something they really need to hear, that they really don't want to hear, that they really need to hear, to have any chance of getting through to them, you need to remember that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. (laughs) My blood is turning into curds. Okay. um, (laughs) the, The point of this whole passage is Jesus is trying to get this across to people, right? We've been like 10 chapters. He's, he's said so many teachings, so many things. He's been trying to like encourage people to come to him and to see what he's trying to show them. He's just healed this guy who was literally born blind. And he said the reason he did it was not to forgive some sin or something, but like by this guy who could never see, to be able to see, that was like a metaphor for everything that he was doing. And it would show the glory of God, like that God is not just good enough to heal somebody who's blind, but to heal humanity who is so blind, they can't see who are the devourers and ruiners of their lives and who is the shepherd and the the savior and the lover of their life. That that blindness that humanity possesses so powerfully, he has come to undo. And we don't want it undone. And so he heals this guy, and he's like, look, there's blindness in the Pharisees that are with him. These are, these are Pharisees that are still with him, listening to him, deciding whether or not they should approve of him, but are not, have not become his disciples. And they're like, wait a second. If you're saying everybody is blind, are you saying that we are blind? And Jesus is like, not only are you blind, but because you don't think you're blind, you're guilty 
because you shouldn't be blind and because you're not humble enough to admit that you're blind, you're going to get judged because you're guilty because you're blind. It's like the trifecta of all forms of worseness. And so this whole section is designed to basically be like, look, Jesus is like, here is my best play at putting together some metaphors to try to help you see where we need to go from here. And the main central one is Jesus as shepherd. And the main point of that is he's saying, follow the one who really cares about you. Listen to the one who knows the stuff that needs to be known, but who like really actually cares about you and has proven it in the most concrete possible way. He has laid his life down for you. And he knows you and he loves you and he wants to guide you. Follow him, right? Now, like I said before, oftentimes that pleading of I care about you often has to go along with something that the person listening does not want to hear. And even though this sounds really love and cuddly of like there's the gape and the sheep and he's the shepherd and he guides the sheep and he holds them and it's so nice. This is actually one of Jesus' most aggressive places, right? Sometimes um, because the, the truth that he wants us to recognize that has the potential to cure our blindness is also a very offensive truth, right? He is saying that he is the gate for the sheep which is a fairly straightforward way in the context of these metaphors of saying, him saying, I am the only way to escape ruin and to belong to the shepherd who brings us to real flourishing. Right? Because he tells them, you know, there's gates and there's shepherds and he comes in, there's a, they open the door for him and the shepherd brings them out and they go in and out and they find pasture and the robbers and thieves come over the fence and he gets all that metaphor stuff and they're, and they're like, Okay, how does this apply? And he's like, okay. Application number one. I'm the gate. He's like, wait, I thought you were the shepherd. We will get there. This is a metaphor. We can keep nuancing it. But let's start with, he's like, I'm the gate. If you want to escape the robbers and thieves who are going to devour you, there's only one way for that to happen. You've got to get in the sheep pen. And there's only one way in the sheep pen for the sheep. The robbers and thieves, they can climb, try to climb over the sides. But for the sheep, there is only one way in, and it is the gate. And if you want to get in, you have to go in through the gate. And if you want to go out into the pasture of flourishing with the shepherd, the shepherd is going to come in the gate, and he's going to gather sheep, and he's going to take them out the gate. Right? And he says, I am the gate for the sheep. Jesus is pretty straightforwardly claiming. He's like, he's saying, I am the way to—and the language he uses here is salvation. To escape ruin— and to find flourishing, which for Jesus in this passage includes escape from ruin, security, liberty. They go in to safety. They go out to life. They move back and forth freely, right? Liberty. Belonging. He's making, he's making a flock of sheep from all kinds of different sheep, he says at the end. I'm going to make a whole crazy group of sheep. It's going to be great. There's going to be an interesting form of belonging. Right? And also provision. He's going to take them out and they're going to find good pasture. And if you connect this with the prophetic word that came about it, that came 500 years before that in Ezekiel 34, there's this beautiful poem about God saying how much he's going to provide for his people through his second shepherd, David, his savior, who he would put over his people. 
Jesus is the gate for the sheep. See, sometimes we think the most aggressive passage in John about the exclusivity of Christian belief is John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty aggressive, right? This is the only way, the, the only saving truth, the only way to full divine life. And nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus, right? That's pretty aggressive. This is way more aggressive than that and far more offensive and far more difficult to hear. And you're like, well, Nick, it's— No, because there's lamps. It's cute. Okay. But what does he call everybody who is offering any kind of different way in this passage? Everyone. A thief and a robber. That's what he's saying. A thief and a robber. He's implicating every other salvation as any other way that you can believe in that you think will cause you to escape human and spiritual ruin and gain human and spiritual salvation. Whether that's a political ideology, whether that's an alternative religion, whether that is a fake Christianity, whatever it is, if it is not that which Jesus authorizes by the coming in and going out of him being the gate, it is the way of a thief and a robber. That's really aggressive, right? Now, you might be like, well, Nick, I know people who believe in these other philosophies. They're not trying to be thieves and robbers, right? That is not necessarily what Jesus is saying. Now, first of all, Jesus does not believe— if you believe that almost everybody is being nice out there and that there aren't a lot of people manipulating people, I think Jesus would say you are hopelessly naive. Okay, first of all. But secondly, you don't have to be malicious. Functionally, if you guide people away from the gate, every human person stands as a sheep in this metaphor who could be part of the flock of Jesus' sheep or could be ruined and stolen and eaten and scattered. Every sheep will find one of those two results, Jesus is saying. Either they will come in through the gate and be protected and led by me, the shepherd, or they will fall to the voice of robbers and thieves, or they will be— struck by the wolf, right? And he's saying, look, if you do something that guides somebody away from going into the gate to something else, you are operating functionally as a thief and a robber. You are stealing by redirecting Jesus' sheep. You are stealing from God his own sheep. When he says, I am the gate, he doesn't say, I am the gate for the shepherds. He doesn't say, I am the gate to keep out the thieves. He says, I am the gate for the sheep. Like, that's what he's focused on. He's focused on the sheep. You are the sheep. Every human pe- person is one he's calling into his sheep pen. And anybody who guides them elsewhere, whether they want to or not, whether they're angry about it or not, whether they're, they even intend it or not, Jesus is saying, look, you need to realize I am counting you as a thief and a robber. And, and it's important because anybody who wants to stop being a thief and a robber can do it right now. Right now. And if you turn to God and you've been a thief and a robber for 70 years, and you're like, God, I think I've—I think I'm a thief and a robber in this metaphor. Like these Pharisees who are like, wait a second, we've been teaching people this stuff that you call blindness our whole lives. Jesus' response is not, yeah, and you're going to hell in like 20 minutes. No, he's like, no, this is why I'm dying on the cross. This is why I'm laying down my life. Because I I offer forgiveness at any moment. Like you can turn right now. You can stop being a thief and a robber, and you can just go in the gate and be a sheep. And he forgives all. Right. Now, 
Think about, think about this for a second. Because you might be like, Nick, you just can't call people that. Okay, I can do whatever Jesus does, first of all. Okay, I realize there are some passages in the Bible that preachers amp up, right? It's kind of like the Bible says give like 10% of your wealth, and somehow some, they can preach that up to 90. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like preachers can make it worse, right? It's like, but this is one of those deals where it's like, look, I, I'm not even sure I'm doing it enough justice. Like, I'm not saying, I'm not making this up, right? Think about it this way if you need a metaphor for it. Imagine this guy goes to college or goes off, to, gets an apartment on his own, and he has a pretty good relationship with his family, right? And he meets this girl who is great in most ways, but she's estranged from her family. She doesn't have a good family life. She, she distrusts families of origin, right? And so she really likes this guy. They hit it off. They're having a great relationship. And just in like lots of subtle ways, she doesn't really want to meet his parents. She really doesn't want to visit his parents, right? They end up getting married because, you know, she's great and he loves her, right? But she wants to live in Seattle. His family lives in Syracuse, you know, and like they don't, she doesn't really want to pay for the plane tickets for Christmas. And now we've got two kids. It's such a hassle to get across the country. But really, she just like really, really doesn't want to be around his family because it just makes her feel nervous. It makes her feel insecure. And she doesn't deal with that. She just keeps them away from him because that's what feels good for her. And she doesn't think about it. And at one point, the mom, they fly across the country and the mom can't take it anymore. And she says, you, you've stolen our son from us. Right? And she's like, what? You know, when she gets apoplectic and clutches her pearls and goes like, oh, what do you mean? Like, what are you accusing me of? And it's like, no, you have. Maybe you didn't like absolutely intentionally do it. But we haven't seen our son for 15 years. You've stolen our son from us. And she's right. And you see, you don't have to, with you like the little political stuff you spout off, or like all the little philosophical this or that, or like Christianity and this, and all, like all these ways we screw around or do whatever we want. We're like, well, we're, look, my heart is right. Well, your actions are wrong. And what Jesus cares about is the functional reality is if his sheep, the human beings he's created for his own redemption, are, are getting guided by your participation away from the gate to anything else, instead of into the pen where he cares for them, you are behaving and acting as a thief and a robber. And you could stop right now. But that is how he classifies it. And it's important that we recognize that. He is jealous for his sheep. It's not that he wants to hate anybody else. But I tell you what, you steal a family's child and you say whatever you want about how good your heart is and they don't care. Because the result matters more than your intentions. Especially when if you would have opened your mind and not been blind, you could have known that was the result of your behavior. You are not just responsible for what you think you know. You are responsible for what you should have known. And it's results that were predictable and were happening before your eyes that you didn't want to see. And so Jesus is, is telling us something that's really hard to hear, right? Okay. We've covered this. We've, okay. Now, this gets at a couple of questions, though, because I know some people are like, okay, I could see how that would apply to, like— completely non-Christian religions, even though they try to include Jesus. He's not Jesus as Jesus reveals himself. But like, what about, when we look at this passage, he's actually talking to Pharisees. So the people he's saying are the primary thieves and robbers in this metaphor are people who think that they're guiding people as shepherds in biblical religion. Do you understand? So that's scary, right? 
Because he's basically saying these people who spent their whole life studying the Bible and, and that they've been teaching what God has spoken and shown about himself so that they would accept the things of God, right? They stand as basically the watchmen of the gate. And Jesus comes up and they're like, oh no, not you. Essentially, that's what the Pharisees did. But a true Moses or the true Torah, the, the teachings of God, they would have recognized Jesus and said, that you heard who we've been waiting for all the time. And they would have opened the gate. So therefore, they're blind. And Jesus is like, you guys are in trouble. Applying that to now, what that means is, is that there are all kinds of people who claim to be teaching even the message of Jesus, much less the message of the Bible, who are actually leading people away from the gate that is Jesus the shepherd for other things. Extreme legalism would be one version that could be as far as this kind of apostasy. The prosperity gospel. Give money to God and he'll pour out his riches on you. I met with an Indian church leader just this week, and he's, he's in Warangal. And listen, the Hindu, the Hindu radicals who have control of that government um, are, are jailing people all over the country. There's a woman who's in this service right now who visited India not too long ago, and she had to wear a sheet over her head to ride in a cab somewhere because the Indian pastors were so afraid that if she would see, her light skin was even seen, they'd assume she was American, assume she was a Christian, and arrest some of the, Christ, the Indian pastors who were at an event. That's how it is in North India. But in Warangal, which is kind of Southeast India, this pastor said, you know what, our biggest problem is actually not the Hindu extremists. It's the Christian prosperity gospel preachers in that wing of the charismatic movement. Now, listen, the, does the Bible teach that God wants to bless us when we follow him and give to him in what he's doing? And when we sacrifice for him, does he—yes, it actually does teach that, right? Jesus says to Peter, when Peter says, look, we've left everything for you. Jesus says—Jesus doesn't say, well, what did you expect? Jesus says, anybody who gives up anything for me will not fail to receive a hundred times more in this life of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and in the future eternal life, right? So Jesus explicitly says— that he gives back and is no person's debtor. There's no sacrifice you make for him that he doesn't beyond repay. But he does not put it into your bank account. Even the material things usually pass through your hands. And so if you actually are following the Lord, you will find yourself at different moments, your heart filled with knowing you're, act, you're acting in the, in, the, in the presence and pleasure of God, doing things that are amazing, participating in things you would have never thought, having relationships you never imagined, all these things enriching your life into flourishing and good pasture in lots of amazing ways, but not— Usually, if you give $100, you get 10000 That's just wrong. And all kinds of charlatan preachers tell people that all over the world. And it drives people out of churches here when they hear about it. But it is also stealing from people all over the world, in Africa and in Asia, and it's driving people in the next generation out of the church. And so we will— we will try to build a church in places like Africa and Asia, and in a generation, we will not find the church expanding and exploding. We will find everybody cynical against it, inoculated, vaccinated against believing the gospel because they have gotten this disease that was called the gospel that's blown through their culture, destroyed their wealth, kept them poor, corrupted their leadership, and made it so they didn't build any real wealth or grow in any real education that could provide flourishing for others. And I, I think it's— I think they're thieves and robbers, right? And there's a bunch of there's a certain, there's, there's spiritualist versions of that where we don't believe what God actually says in Scripture, but the imaginations of our spiritual minds and like, well, I think this. And, uh. There's a lot of versions of that. Now, this starts to get touchy when we start being like, okay, well, what about like 
other denominations of Christianity? Like, what about, like, Roman Catholics? Or Ukrainian Orthodox folks? Or fundamentalist Baptists? Or non-denominational evangelical churches? Or, like, are, are some of these just, like, straight-up thieves and liars? Or, like, how do, we, how do we sort this? Because on one level, if this is what Jesus is saying, we, we probably, at least our leadership, has some responsibility to do some sorting. And at the same time, you don't want to become a new kind of thief and robber by putting yourself in the position of sorting all people <laughs> and driving away a bunch of Jesus' sheep by overly judging people that should be invited. Does that make sense? So some of the principles that I use for this and that we use at High Point are the following. One, what do they actually explicitly and practically teach? Not what are the rumors, not what are the things that we decided in 1640 about this group, right? What do they actually explicitly and practically teach, and what is the result of their ways, right? Um, one of the reasons this matters is um, High Point's background is both—was um, revivalist, Protestant, slash fundamentalist Baptist, right? And like magisterial Reformation Protestant. So we're like the two streams of Protestantism crashing into one another, right? Historically, magisterial Protestantism—that's Luther, Calvin, those sorts of people— believed that the Roman Catholic Church was a true church that had false churches and false Christians and false shepherds in it, and that you had to work through it on a case-by-case basis, and it was in a state of corruption that should be cleaned up in terms of many of its beliefs. And so it needed strong reformation, but they didn't apostatize the whole thing. Does that make sense? Out of that group came a group called the Anabaptists, Anaphoree, that is rebaptized people. You'll notice the Baptists baptize people as many times as it takes rather than just once. And so in the Reformation, the Anabaptists were treated even worse than the Reformers. And so everybody hated them, and everybody killed them, okay? And so the Lutherans and the, and the Calvinists, the Reformed people, and the Roman Catholics drowned and burned alive and filleted and stole their property and like just basically defecated on Anabaptists everywhere. And this happened in England, and it happened in the continent. It just happened everywhere, right? And so— Fox's Book of Martyrs, which was the second most purchased book in the history of America other than the Bible, paralleled the early Christians and their martyrdom under the beast of Rome, that is the Roman Empire in the early centuries, with the struggle and martyrdom of the Anabaptist reformers under new Rome beast, which was the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of England, and other violent versions of the Reformation against Anabaptists. And so there's this, this huge history within this sort of like fundamentalist kind of Baptist thing. Is like the reason we hate their guts is because they literally killed us for a long time. And it was really bad, and we were right about a bunch of things, and it was terrible. And so you can understand why they're like, the Catholics are all going to hell. They like literally murdered thousands of our forefathers. Like literally, I can trace my own lineage back to Plymouth Bay Colony, right? to the Puritans. The Puritans were Congregationalist reformers that the Church of England and the Catholics in England hated. They stole their property. They kicked them out to the Netherlands. They lied to them about coming to the New World, thinking they could make money off them while starving them to death. They stole from them as they came to America. That's why most of them died other than that they tried socialism and it didn't work. Right? And then they slowly built a society. Is it any wonder that there were a lot of American churches that were like, these people are all super bad? 
Now here's the thing. You can know all that church history and you still can't choke people now for what their fathers did to our fathers. Right? All that history is true and yet Jesus is building a crazy motley flock with sheep from all kinds of pens. Okay, now in this passage, it's he's leading actually the people of God out of the pen of Judaism. Out, and he's going to get other sheep that will hear his voice who are in this context, Gentiles. Right? If you've been smoking a lot of weed, you probably think it's aliens. And it's not that this couldn't refer to aliens, but it just doesn't in this context. Okay? Maybe like applicationally, there will be aliens it applies to because God can make salvation whatever he wants on other planets and so on. But here he means Gentiles. And so he's going to come and he's going to bring in the Gentiles who the Jews think are like crazy people who could never be saved, right? And he's going to make one flock out of all these people. He's going to keep going and make a bigger and bigger flock and he's going to guide them, right? Our job now is to get with that program and to discern as best we can in any particular moment how do we figure out who is in the flock of Jesus and who isn't based on what he says the gate is without being overly judgmental or assuming that past assumptions are now correct? How do we sort this all out? And we're going to have to do it with discernment in real time, with charity towards all, but with the hard-mindedness where we're going to face down a wolf if it tries to scatter the flock, and that we're not going to back down to any thieves and robbers which means we have to identify who is behaving as a thief and a robber and a wolf. There, if you, we just go, well, Nick, we just need to be nice and caring and loving. And we don't—no, that is false. Jesus determines what a good shepherd is on the basis of his willingness to face down wolves, thieves, and robbers and love his sheep and know the difference between the two. There is—if you, you want simple answers, go out and get a political ideology— and start watching more cable news. You're not going to get it from Jesus. Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. He goes one by one, and he sorts it out with discernment. And that's what he's going to do in his modern church. And, and it's going to be weird. Because I know churches that I would have said were part of whatever movement we're a part of, that I can't tell the difference between them and people who don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible anymore. And I know Roman Catholics that I feel like I have more common with them than some of the people who like think Catholics are going to hell. Like, I sat down with a Roman Catholic bishop, and he literally was like, look, I recognize you as belonging to Jesus. And there are people in my church that I don't recognize. There is a sorting that is happening that God is doing, not just in, like, Protestant churches, but, like, in all churches everywhere, of whether you're going to have the guts to believe that Jesus is the gate, and he is the shepherd that cares for us, and we are going to follow him, and we're going to judge everything, not by, whether, by us being the Pharisees that judge Jesus and whether or not what he says is acceptable, or whether or not we are going to follow him based on what he says. Because he is the authorized gate, and he is the one that is leading us to where we are going, and he loves us, and he has laid his life down for us. Does that make sense? Now, in this second, the second realm where he talks about himself as the shepherd— where are we here? Okay. In the second room where he talks about himself as a shepherd, the comparison is not to thieves and robbers, but to hired hands. One of the saddest things about human beings is even when we're right, we're weak. So, so the church of God is actually filled with people who actually do believe some right things. And when it comes time to face a wolf about it, we run. 
It's like we just, we just have no guts. And I don't mean, I don't, you probably think I'm already being mean. In fact, one of the funny things about this is like, last hour when I preached the sermon, I have never gotten less eye contact from people than when I got off this stage last hour. But look, look, I'm not preaching this up, y'all. It's, I mean, it's like right here. I mean, he, basically what he's saying, he's saying, look, basically everybody who claims to care for my people is like a hired hand who runs at the first sign of trouble. Right? Your church moves their worship hour by 20 minutes and like, who, well, who do they think they are? Small group takes, I mean, small group takes two and a half hours a week. We can't possibly do that. Right? Like, sometimes when Nick is preaching, we miss some of the first quarter of the Packers game. Right? Like, Nick said something that could be interpreted as supporting something Democrats believe or Republicans. Can you believe that? Right? Because your enemy's wrong about everything. Literally everything, right? I mean, it's unbelievable. Like, I've been—I've I've gone through some stuff in the ministry this, these last few months that have been pretty difficult for me. And I've had people be like, are you doing okay? Are you going to—I mean, are you going to quit? And I'm like, I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm bleeding. Am I, am I bleeding and you don't see it? Like, I don't see it. Like, what, what? Do you think I'm that fragile? I mean, some of my Indian Christian friends think I'm going to quit because they're like, well, I mean, we get beat up and like half beat to death over here. But like, you're an American. So surely you're going to give up at the first sign of trouble. Right? I mean, think of, I mean, what kind of church are we going to have to be for people who are richer than human beings have ever been who live in this city who don't know Jesus? To recognize that this flock stands for something that they're willing to burn all that to ashes for. Their good name, their good prestige, that everybody likes them, that everybody will affirm them, they can be upwardly mobile. To take on a philosophy and a belief and a lifestyle that is roundly disliked and despised and that they should do that. And that they should actually see some of the stuff that they've been doing as them being thieves and robbers before God. You think they're going to do that if we're like hired hands? We're like, well, I can't possibly. But Jesus is saying like, this is what it's like. And if you go back to Ezekiel 34, he's like every single shepherd of Israel. Like he, he's not careful. Like, you know, every once in a while, people will put their hands to something for Jesus and they just, you know, they won't stick with it all the way. Yeah. How many disciples stood with Jesus when he got arrested again? How many was it? It was zero. Zero. One of the things you and I have to understand is that we are living in an era. Like some of you, like remember that thing? It was like a meme. How many times do men think about the Roman Empire in a week? And it's like, or a day, and it's like three times. You know why modern men think about the Roman Empire? Because they're so demoralized that we live in such a weak time. There's something really deep in men's hearts where they, they want to punch something. They want to like chop something up. Like, like they feel like they have strength for a reason and like we should be using it and we don't. Like we're, we're, we're pushing down keys and we're like, people are like, you're hitting it too hard. You know, it's like <laughs> we can't do anything without somebody telling us we're being too rough or too toxic. And like guys are like, what are we flipping here for? Right? Like, and, and so, and, and everybody just quits. Like, 
Anybody, because because we're such consumers now, it's like, well, I mean, I think that this should be three cents less expensive and I can get it on the Amazon for the such and such and so and so. Oh my gosh, it's not going to be delivered for 47 hours. And like, we're just such babies. And just like, I mean, like, it feels like a foreign country. If they were able to shut down our air conditioning for 27 minutes, we would give them our constitution. Like, do we not understand who is our Lord? Like, there is nobody with more stick-to-it grit and guts than Jesus. Like, he, he backs down to nothing and no one, and he, and, and he doesn't even lose his self-control when he does it. He's not mean about it. He's not like, well, he doesn't call people names derogatorily. He doesn't have to be a jerk about it. He just is completely self-possessed. He's just like, nope, I'm not doing it. Look, say what you want, but this is the truth. And he just says it just straightforwardly, and he doesn't mince words, but he's not meaner than he has to be. He just knows exactly who he is all the time. And in John's gospel, he tells us it's because he knows who his father is. And so he just knows what he's doing. He knows why he's there. And there's no questions in his mind. And the question is, are we ever going to be like that? You know? And you're like, Nick, this is you kind of hurt my feelings. I'm like, well, maybe you're a hired hand. But here's the cool thing about being a hired hand. You suck. You suck, okay? But here's the thing. <laughs> Every one of those apostles was restored and became great. Every single one, when that moment came, when the wolves came to devour Jesus, and they all ran and they all quit, and some of them in very undignified ways. One ran away naked. One pulled out his knife and tried to kill somebody, cough somebody's ear. It's like, so you wait. So you're telling me, you took out your sword, and you attacked somebody, which you weren't supposed to do, and you were so bad at it that you cut off a guy's ear. <laughs> Great job, you know? And, right, Judas betrays Jesus. You see, that there's only one that doesn't come back, right? There is a kind of heart, because see, Judas wasn't a hired hand. Judas was a thief and a robber. right? But the hired hands, their problem was not that they were trying to steal the sheep. Their problem is they were just cowards. And there's some of that in all of us. And Jesus just keeps restoring the cowards that come back. And when he does, they get a little braver. You know what I mean? And they, they step up a little more, and they can do the things that they didn't have the guts to do before. Whether it's a hardcore thing, like the courage to say, no, I'm not doing it. Or whether it's a hard kind thing, like forgiving someone. They get a little bit more courage in their faith. That's what faith really is, is a form of courage. And so I tell you this because Jesus, we should be filled with passion and love for him because he was never a hired hand for us. He always faced down the wolf. He always knew us as a sheep. He always led us all the way to the gate into the security of salvation. He did everything. He never, ever, ever questioned whether it was time to face the wolf. There was no, no hesitation in him. When the wolf was pulling out his spleen and intestines, he was still stabbing it because he wanted to kill it before it died so it couldn't get the sheep. Like, that's the kind of attitude Jesus has for us, for you. Like, think about that. That's how much he cares that you won't be ruined, that you won't be torn away, that you won't be scattered. Right? And then, he, and then he gives you the power in this life to be a small S shepherd. And he's like, okay, now I'm going to send into heaven. I'm going to give this 
whole thing to you. You're the shepherds now. What are you going to do? Are you going to be a hired hand and are you, you going to be a shepherd? And when you find yourself to be a cowardly hired hand that ran, he doesn't just kill you and fire you. He just, he sends you back out there with a little more courage to try again until we learn how to be courageous and we learn how to be real shepherds. And that's the only way that we can, ha- that we'll have it, right? All right. More can be said as always. Two very quick applications. Sorry. The first is just this. All right, what kind of caretaker are you? Are you a shepherd or are you a hired hand? Good discussion for yourself over Taco Bell or in small group. And the second is, what kind of voice do you follow? Do you notice that like three times in this passage, Jesus says, the reason his sheep don't end up getting lost is because they know his voice. Like they're willing to hear in their conscience the conviction of God. So what they know is the truth. And when they have that ringing truth, when they know this is what God really does want, the philosophical, analytical, blah, 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 blah. When they know it in their soul that God is calling them to follow him, they choose to do it. Like a sheep that know the shepherd's voice. There is this, there is this point of internal honesty when God is speaking to you that you have to believe and respond to. Do you hear that voice? Do you respond to it? Are you responding to it? Those are the two things I think we should take from this. Now, right now we have an opportunity to come to communion or the Lord's table.